Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 240, Reading David Walker's Appeal, The Pen as the Sword. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm trying something a little bit different. This fall and winter, the Old North Church Historic Site has been hosting a series of conversations about radical black abolitionist David Walker and his book, An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. As part of their digital speaker series, Education Director Catherine Matthews moderated a conversation between artist, educator, and activist Lamurchie Fraser and playwright Peter Snowd on December 15th. This edition of the series focused on the text of the appeal as a piece of rhetoric that pointed out the brutality and hypocrisy of slavery and urged the enslaved to rebel by any means necessary. A big thanks to our friends at Old North for allowing us to share this panel with you. But before we do, it's time to pause and thank our Patreon sponsors for making Hub History possible. When we started this show over five years ago, I never dreamed that a time would come when 3,000 people would tune in every couple of weeks to hear me talk about Boston history. If you would have told me back then that we'd win a Preservation Achievement Award at about the same time that we got our millionth download, well, I might just have called you crazy. I never thought we'd get this far, and at first I didn't think about what it would take to do so. As our expenses for things like podcast media hosting, audio processing, and transcription have grown over the years, the sponsors who support the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month have allowed us to keep pace. If you're one of our 34 currently active Patreon sponsors, thank you. And if you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. David Walker was born free in Wilmington, North Carolina in either 1785 or 1796 to an enslaved father and a free mother. As a young man, he moved to Charleston, South Carolina and joined the African Methodist Episcopal Church, where he may have helped to inspire Denmark Vesey's 1822 slave insurrection. Following the violent suppression of this uprising, Walker left South Carolina, eventually ending up in Boston by 1825. Here, he opened a used clothing shop, got married, and plunged into the nascent abolition movement that was growing among Boston's black population. He worked as a writer for Freedom's Journal before publishing his appeal in 1829. Walker sent copies of his pamphlet South in the hands of white sailors, or sewn into the linings of the coats that he sold to free African-American sailors. As these pamphlets were shared or read aloud in the Carolinas, they electrified the black population and terrified whites. Frederick Douglass would later say that the book startled the land like a trump of coming judgment. In fact, it may have inspired Nat Turner's 1831 slave insurrection in Walker's native Wilmington. Before long, Georgia imposed the death penalty for any black person who brought a copy of the appeal into the state. The governor of Virginia, the mayor of Savannah, and other Southern officials wrote to Boston Mayor Harrison Gray Otis, demanding Walker's arrest. Georgia went a step further, offering a bounty of $10,000 for anyone who could bring Walker into the state alive and $1,000 if he was dead. Then, 11 months after the appeal was published, David Walker's dead body was found on his Beacon Hill doorstep, 
inspiring rumors that Southern assassins had come to claim his bounty. Inspiring rumors that Southern assassins had come to claim his bounty. If you'd like to hear a more detailed account of Walker's life, check out the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 240 for a link to our earlier episode 190 about Walker. I'll also have a link to four excerpts from the book that'll be discussed in this week's episode, so you can read those and follow along. With that, I'll turn the reins over to Catherine Matthews from Old North. Good evening, everybody. My name is Catherine Matthews. And I'm the Director of Education at the Old North Church and Historic Site. Thank you all for being with us tonight as we continue our look at the life and legacy of David Walker, a 19th century Black abolitionist. Tonight, we will be taking a closer look at David Walker's 1829 pamphlet, An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. The appeal was widely read widely shared, and widely impactful. We are fortunate indeed to have Lamerchi Frazier and Peter Snowed with us tonight as we embark on this exploration. Lamerchi is an artist, activist, and an educator, and is also the Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History in Boston and Nantucket. Peter, is an award-winning playwright, history buff, and a former journalist who has written a play about Walker. He is also a member of the Beacon Hill Scholars, which is a nonprofit group dedicated to raising public awareness of the historic Black community on Beacon Hill, a community which, of course, included David Walker. So tonight's program's a bit of an experiment, and we are excited to get started. And here's how it's going to work. Lamerchi will start by giving us a little context for the appeal in terms of Walker's life and the socio-cultural and political world in which he lived. Peter will then offer us some insight into the way the appeal is written. Then we have five excerpts lined up, one from the preamble and one from each of the four articles uh, or sections. We will hear them read aloud, and then Lamerchi and Peter will discuss them. So now, let's get started. Lamerchi, floor is yours. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, it is a pleasure indeed to be here and invited in to the House of Old North and to discuss with Peter Snowd the life of, a, uh, of an extraordinary, visionary, prophet and abolitionist, David Walker. Uh, David Walker was born free into a world of slavery. And he was born in 1796 in an area of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, called Lower Cape Fear. And this place that he was born into has an extraordinary uh, sense of what is happening in America with regard to slavery because there are three to one enslaved people to every white that is there who are black. And then there are the mixtures of free and enslaved people in that population. So when we look at a David Walker, who was born into this environment of slavery as a free man, his father, Anthony 
was uh, enslaved, but his mother was free. So therefore he is born free. That is the definition of how he is identifying. He is educated. He is uh, in an area where um, in North Carolina that is peopled by uh, a very interesting group of people who are organizing themselves, who are looking at what is this thing called slavery, who are in the measure of slave revolt, if you will. And when we look at by 1796, we have the winds of revolution that have been happening, not only the American revolution, but the Haitian revolution. And the idea that impinging on the freedom of uh, those who are enslaved is this, uh, this nature that makes them know that they are entitled to freedom. Based on the moral teachings, uh, they are organizing themselves in spaces where they have been denied gathering and assembling, except for religious reasons. And so the church immediately becomes this pay place where they can talk and they can convene and they can um, um, discuss strategies where they can discuss uh, their lives as they exist and what they will do about it. So in um, this area of, of North Carolina you have or, and South Carolina, along the uh, Southeast coast, you have had already rebellions. You have uh, one in 1721, another one in 1745, 1747, 1767, and one great one in 1800s that has produced people who understand their right to be free and are ready to do something about it. So in reaction to that, you have... Um, have had the Revolutionary War, which um, enables uh, John Quincy Adams to think about whether we want Black patriots in that American Civil War. And it is a general in Virginia who admonishes him to understand that it is Black people who are, and, and this is a quote, on September 73, 1775, John Adams fretted over the risk of enlisting the support of Georgia and South Carolina in the revolution because of their huge problematic Black population. And this Black population was uh, uh, composed of people who wanted to be free by any means necessary, if you think about it. And that the, he said that the Negroes have a wonderful art of communicating intelligence among themselves. It will run several hundreds of miles in a week or a fortnight. Despite the efforts of whites to delimit the revolutionary favor to themselves alone, many blacks shared fully, if not as publicly, in assenting to the era's persuasive, anti-colonial, and democratic ideology. So from that, we, we can get that there is this air of freedom in the world. It is not just here in America, it's in Haiti, and, and in that speak, this is David Walker's milieu. This is his, the massaging of him as a man, as he grows up in this, this arena. And as we look at the movement that 
is producing free people and enslaved people in the same place, we have an economy that is affected by that. Whites are, uh, in general, very bereft at there being free labor available because they cannot be employed. And free Blacks have even a harder time being employed. And so with this combination and mixture of things, David moved from, and that's that's some of the complexity. I'm not going to say that I can offer all of it at, in this point, because that's a, probably another two lectures. But when we talk about David uh, moving from, uh, from where he was in Wilmington, North Carolina, he goes to South Carolina, where Charleston is a very another vibrant place of Blacks and their organizations and their, uh, uh, their rebellion. And we know about the very important rebellion of 1822 with Denmark Vesey. And it is said that Walker was around that area and in conversations uh, with him. But what I wanted to say about Walker's world at that time is that it is marked by notable organizational structure because Blacks in uh, Charleston are organized into groups that fit their needs, like the Brown Friendship or Fellowship Society, which was full of refugees from Haiti, from, uh, from uh, Santo Domingo. And, and, and they formed for their purposes as lighter complexion mulattoes to be able, that's what they were called then. That's not what we would say now. That's not proper. But um, at that time, that's what they were referred to, to meet their needs. And then there was an organization of free and enslaved Black society uh, of the dark men of color. And another one that was an educational um, society for the minors, moralist society. So when we look at this idea of Black people being in, imbued with organizational structure. David is growing into this idea of being able to be present, to be uh, um, uh, uh, forging his way through this understanding of networking and organization. And so when he arrives in Boston, um, we, we have to understand that he's worked with the people who are in that insurrection in Denmark, V.C.'s 1822 um, 1822 moment. And they have already talked about the, the, the two of them, um, Denmark VC and David Walker, about informants and people who was what we call today snitch uh, on, on what the conspiracy was. And so they were working toward this idea of Blacks being unified enough to, to shield the conspiracies to end their enslavement. And um, as he arrives in Boston, he is in a city where Prince Hall in uh, 1770 and manumitted by 1775 is uh, informing a group of men who are to be leadership through the Masonic order. And by, 18, uh, by 1787, they have received their charter from London and are operating. And what we find about this landscape in Boston that this laid landscape of Boston uh, to what would be uh, the Atlantic world, that the Masons then are in, in, uh, involving Masonic, um, Masonic order with evangelism, 
and Christianity. That these are two operating principles that are there. And that the, the components of evangelism, benevolence, charity, universal love, and grace are what uh, Prince Hall and his men are advancing. And the movement of expatriation, going back to Africa or immigrating to Haiti, that is a part of what the, they're, they're pronouncing. And they're committed to ending slavery and freedom, unlike other uh, Masonic lodges at the time. And they declare themselves absolutely dedicated to being free and independent. It is uh, John T. Hilton, who is here in Boston, who says, we will not be tributary. We are devoted to this cause of ending slavery. We are devoted to what has begun as this movement of benevolence to now understanding that, our, that we ourselves and by our rights are to work in unison as a people of color and to free and independent, to be free and independent of other lodges. And so this is what Walker comes into in 1825. We know that he's only here about, what, five to six years. We're only graced with his presence for that time. And so as uh, we think of the men that he's meeting with who have now come to the point where they are changing their direction, that they're here and they're going to be here. They're devoted to what's happening here and not exp expatriation to Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, by 1829. That's, that's where they are. Um, but just before that, as um, the first Black anti-slavery society in Boston that we know, know about that's operating on Beacon Hill, where Prince Hall has directed Black men to purchase property um, uh, and where they have built an African meeting house and a free Black community of agency, organizing itself, networking itself. That Freedom's Journal, which is the first Black newspaper um, that's actually begun in New York, 1827, um, is operating. And the uh, Massachusetts General Colored Society, which is the first Black anti-slavery society that we know of in Boston. There may have been others, but David Walker, as he's here in Boston, he comes, becomes a member of that society. He becomes not only an advocate of abolition, but he's a writer and he writes for Freedom's Journals. He is an agent of that paper. And in that paper, what he does is admonish people to be united in this cause. And, um, one of the, the things that he says in a speech to the, the Massachusetts General Colored Association in uh, December of 1829, he says, the primary object of this institution is to unite the colored population so far through the United States of America as may be practical and expedient, forming societies, opening, extending, and keeping up correspondence and not withholding anything. He is fervent in his admonishing of the, the work of being Black, of being free. And this group of abolitionists is looking at facing this crisis of being Black. This is a crisis to them. And they 
use Christianity that was embraced by the Masons, that was that is alive in the Southern states as a marriage of moral um, adherence, but as an instrument that is then pressed through the media and publication. And so therein we arrive, and this is a very, you know, kind of cut short version of this, but, and it's so hard to talk about him because he had so many dynamics to his life. But as we think about the use of his words and publication, he is writing the appeal. He's written the appeal and he's an owner of a, a using used clothing store on Brattle Street in Boston. He's got the force of the Massachusetts General Color Association. He's got the force of the Masonic order that he belongs to. He's got the force of a free black community with him. And they are all strategizing and networking to get this appeal distributed in the South. And so he is going to rely on that which he left in South and North Carolina and, and the seacoast of the runaways, the Maroons who form their own groups that resist slavery and this kind of swamp culture that is moving in, through the tributaries of the rivers along that area to distribute this pamphlet. And another way of this distribution becomes to line the soldiers, um, the, the sailors who come into his shop to buy coats and line their, their uh, vests with the, the pamphlet. So this strategy of distribution of this very incendiary document becomes the focus in Georgia and South Carolina of laws that are adopted to even hold sailors back at the port, not allow them to integrate into the populations that may receive this literature. Because people, regardless of what we think about the mythology of what was existed in slavery, there are people who can read. There are people who can meet. And this document becomes a very ardent force in, in making the thinking about not being mediocre, being excellent in your striving. That's one of his principles. The other is to encourage people before prophets and, and to be human to the interest of what would be implied by uh, taking the opportunity of self-government, of self-governance, even that which was uh, exemplary of the Haitian revolution. And so as this pamphlet is being distributed, the, um, <laughs> there is a reward put out on his life, uh, $3,000 dead and $10,000 alive and in the South to make a principal example of him. Um, meanwhile, we know that he has spoken with a woman in Boston who lived next door to him on Joy Street, Mariah Stewart, who is an evangelist and an exhorter also, who is in the political arena. And that brings up David Walker's support of women and voting. I, I, most people don't talk about that aspect of him, but she even quotes him in her later writings and is one of the first suffragists by uh, um, 1833, if you will, in Boston. But more importantly, as he has built this world, it, as he is 
integrating and moving in this world that is built around the idea of freedom, democracy, and public republicanism. And he is refuting Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia that says blacks are beasts and have no creativity. And even Phyllis Wheatley is not a poet. All of these uh, uh, um, um, uh, kind of treaties that reduce and oppress black people. He is also, um, he marries into a Boston Brahmin family. His wife's name is Eliza Butler. And he has a son, Edwin Walker, who, to give you some idea of what his political influence was, after the Civil War, his son is one of the first elected representatives to the Massachusetts legislature in in, uh, 1866. So this kind of aspect of David, um, I could talk about him all night, and I want to give others the, the, the opportunity to say what they have to say about David Walker. This dynamism that he presents is a challenge not only to whites, but to blacks to govern themselves in a world uh, milieu, in a world, not just the United States particularly, but as he talks about the landscape and the, what we call now the global majority of three quarters of the planet being black and brown people. He is operating with others others in abolition who are traveling to England, uh, greatly is uh, acknowledged their mobility. He is acknowledging that this is peculiar and particularly addressed to those who are in America, but it is a part of a global presence that he's encouraging. Thank you so much, Lamarchi. That was fantastic. Um, Peter, would you like to talk a little bit about the writing itself? Of the sure. Um, I just actually want to add a couple of things uh, to the context and then talk a little bit about some of the themes uh, that come through in, uh, for me anyway, in, um, in the appeal. And I'd love to hear what other folks feel about that. Um, a couple of things to just for us to bear in mind that in 1829, when when the appeal was published, uh, Boston was an extremely hostile place for black folks. Um, what else is new? Um, but uh, you know, and, and Lamucci alluded to this is that there was this scientific racism that was growing, uh, which held that black people were subhuman. They were not even, um, you know, human beings. Um, and actually, Walker in the appeal refers to uh, to black folks being, uh, you know, uh, uh, referred to as, um, you know, uh, of, of, of tribes of monkeys and orangutans. Um, and as Lamont alluded to, the, you know, Jefferson and others, um, uh, sort of legitimized this this form of anti-black racism. That um, so it was a time when you know if folks from the black community on Beacon Hill went across Boston Common, they were at constant risk of being attacked and beaten up by white people. So um, so there was that, and um, uh, and and Walker was determined to challenge. Jefferson and others who were legitimizing this kind of racism because he saw that this would be 
totally institutionalized in American society unless it was it was it was seriously challenged. Um, uh, I think the uh, the other thing just to uh, mention uh, contextually is that abolitionists at this time, 1829, were very small in number and were widely despised um, by white folks. Um, and it was, you know, they they were uh, regularly or at risk of being attacked uh, in public in, in public meetings and so forth. Um, and the abolition abolition movement that we we think about really didn't get into gear in any meaningful way until the beginning of the 1830s. So at this point, um, you know, you have this very hostile atmosphere and this black man uh, suddenly appears in print with this devastatingly uh, argued critique of white hypocrisy, white Christian hypocrisy around slavery. And he takes on white leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, and he calls them out, you know, directly uh, with righteous rage, with eloquence, with passion, and with humor, with sarcasm. Um, and as uh, Dr. Salim Washington said in the previous uh, series, uh, speaker series uh, presentation, Walker had the temerity to say that God was on his side. Um, and I, I just want to say that I think in, in, in writing the appeal, in distributing it, Walker essentially put a bullseye on his chest. Um, it was an act of self-sacrifice. Uh, as Dr. Washington also said, Walker was going to risk it all because that was what he was called to do. Mm -hmm. um, and he must have known his life was going to be short. In fact, he refers to it in the appeal. He writes, I write without the fear of man. I am writing for my God and fear none but himself. They may put, to, put me to death if they choose. Now, you might hear an echo of that speech or that uh, thought in the last speech that was made by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, April 3rd, 1968, before he was assassinated. He wrote famously, I mean, he said famously, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And interestingly enough, when King was killed, he was in his early 30s. When Walker died, ostensibly of tuberculosis, but of course, there's a strong kind of opinion that he was assassinated by um, by sub agents of Southern planters or somebody hostile. He was also in his early 30s. So two early martyrs to the cause. Um, so uh, going to the to the sort of the characteristics of the appeal, I was kind of um, reading it again, uh, you know, in preparation for, for us for this for this gathering. And I I just remembered how when I first read it, um, how powerful it was, um, but I also found it both somewhat, um, I was blown away, but I find it somewhat confusing at times, um, repetitive occasionally, uh, he would make detours. And I think once I understood 
the context in which he was writing and what he was trying to do, it, it made a whole lot more sense. Um, but I think two things to say about it, uh, of course, lots to say, but two things I'll just highlight. One is that this, the appeal was written to be spoken. Um, uh, you know, uh, what Walker expected was that he would recruit or there would be recruited black leaders in communities in the South who were literate. Um, yes, there were a lot of literate uh, black folks clandestinely, but uh, the vast majority did not have access to the chance to learn to read and write. In fact, it was illegal to do so. And, you know, you could be whipped or worse if you were caught doing it. So um, he hoped that he would, that, that black leaders would take it upon themselves to um, to to recite this essentially this speech to gatherings of folks who wouldn't otherwise have access to it, um, and you can hear the preacher obviously the the evangelist in his writing uh, those those stirring cadences the um, the you know that 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 that, that rhetorical. Um, uh, Jerryman. Uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, and um, so the other thing I want to say that struck me again reading it, and this is throughout the the appeal, is is the tone. It's a tone of authority and total conviction uh, and certainty. Um, he almost dares white people to contradict what he's saying and what he's implying. Um, prove me wrong is what he was saying. And I, I think it, it, it's quite extraordinary that he maintains that, that, that energy and that pace and that authority throughout, throughout the document. Um, so uh, I think maybe we could go to the preamble as the first thing. Um, Before we, we go there, yeah, um, I would like to comment that um, when we talk about David Walker and the Bible and Christianity, that we have to recognize that there is movement among Black people to use this as an instrument for metaphor of the mm -hmm. circumstances for which they were found in. And when he talks about that as an anti-slavery tool, um, he, he speaks in, a, in this one of these quotes, your full glory and happiness as well as those of all other colored people under heaven shall never be fully consummated, but with the entire emancipation of your enslaved brethren all over the world. For I believe it is the will of the Lord that our greatest happiness shall consist in working for the salvation of our whole body. Mm. When this is accomplished, a burst of glory will shine upon you, which will indeed astonish you and the world. There is a great work for you to do as trifling as some of you may think of it. But for Walker, this is this idea that there was this, that we have been removed from the construct of a land that gave us different languages um, to negotiate thought. And that it is, as we look at the preamble and the other 
uh, men of color court, that there is this idea of being able to um, become literate and use the Bible to somewhat look at the syncretization of what thought in African patterns of thinking and African descended people were thinking and through their rituals and community would be able to not be so identified in the Western world as subversive. So that is another context that we have to think about Walker being in Gullah land, Gullah territory, that is about not just this pure Christian thought as it is. And I, I often ask the question, would Christ want to be Christian? Um, the way that Christianity is uh, being used as an instrument to to even justify slavery. Uh, but that this is an important point to um, look at Walker's um, refute and resistance to uh, what Christians were espousing and the hypocrisy, as you were saying, um, Peter, that was persistent. So with that, let's uh, dive into the appeal, the excerpt from the preamble. Peter, would you like to read this? I will ask one question here. Can our condition be any worse? Can it be more mean and abject? If there are any changes, will they not be for the better, though they may appear for the worst at first? Can they get us any lower? Where can they get us? They are afraid to treat us worse for they know well the day they do it, they are gone. But against all accusations, which may or can be preferred against me, I appeal to heaven for my motive in writing, who knows that my object is, if possible, to awaken in the breasts of my afflicted, degraded and slumbering brethren, a spirit of inquiry and investigation respecting our miseries and wretchedness in this Republican land of liberty. The gauntlet is thrown. Um, I have a question. This is, um, he starts this off with, I have one question, then proceeds to ask multiple questions. So what is the power of the question? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I think that the question is a tool to uh, not directly address it, but to get you to think critically about what would be your answer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, a, it's, it's also a device used by um, <laughs> effective speakers to engage, to, to then um, have the audience own the, the question. What is the question and how will you respond? And um, as he does, he's like asking for de- definitions for you to identify yourself in some part of this question or what do you think about it? But more, more than, than that in this quote for me is this assertion of the Republican land of liberty, that mm-hmm. this is um, in that milieu of the Republican um, ideology. This is a republic. This is a de- democracy. This is where... Um, uh, the land of egalitarian thought and equality and all of that and justice is supposed to be 
in these documents of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And as you talked about MLK, you know, he said that those were the two most important documents in America. And so as these are um, looked at in the language of the uh, where uh, Jefferson is in Europe and the kind of flavor of language that is being used in these documents to speak to liberty or as um, um, the, 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 the winds and tides of uh, freedom from colonialism and, and freedom from the, uh, of America from England and freedom from um, the, the, the ravages of oppression that in this land that is supposed to be so fair um, uh, that um, John T. Hilton, who is one of the uh, Masonic uh, people in, in, in Boston talks about that, that this is a space that is boasted of liberty, Christianity and civilization. And then over 20 hundred thousands of our race are kept in perpetual slavery without one ray of hope of their ever being released from their state of bondage, but by death. Americans does not this picture of human depravity move you to implore the aid of your God to assist in moving this foul spot from thy country's name. And David, um, uh, John T. Hilton was the Grand Mason of the, the lodge here in Boston and he and, and David would be in, in, um, in conversation. And so it made me think about this, this Republican land of liberty as it's flavoring the planet as a source of human activity engaging that. And yet this country is, it, it is in the measure of um, against that very principle in enslaving men and women and children to its profit base. And there is a, a, a comment from a Southerner, a white planter that um, David writes about later. He says, everything must be transacted through the medium of Negroes. And when he says that, he is saying that in this Republican land of liberty, I'm supposed to be as a possessor of whiteness, I am supposed to be on top, but yet I have to still negotiate everything through people who are in that doctrine of white supremacy less than me. So for me, this is what David is pointing to. I'm sure that there are other thoughts so that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Peter, did you have something that you'd like to? Um, to uh, actually, in the original, you may recall, Republican Land of Liberty, uh, as much referred to, is actually in italics. And there are three exclamation marks right after it. This is a device that, that Walker uses very uh, cannily, I think, throughout the, uh, the document as he he uses italics and exclamation marks, particularly when he wants to call out hypocrisy among white people. And, and it, you can see it throughout the document. It's really interesting. Um, the other thing I was going to say about it is um, uh, that um, I think that the way he contrasts uh, miseries and wretchedness in the Republican land of liberty. It's a striking image contrasting those two phrases. Um, 
yeah, I'll I'll stop there. Maybe somebody else want to give their own thoughts about this. We do have one comment in the chat. Um, despite saying that his condition in this country couldn't be worse, Walker rejects the colonization movement, saying that black people have more claim to America than whites because of the country's because the country's wealth had been built on black blood and tears, which is an interesting observation. I too was struck by the it couldn't be worse. Yeah. I think also just to say too in uh, this is the preamble, but he encapsulates just in two, two sentences, what he's writing about, because he says, um, how was it? Uh, uh, my, what is it? My, um, my motive in writing uh, is, if possible, to awaken the breast of my afflicted, degraded and slumbering brethren, etc. Um, and I think he has two audiences for that. He has the black audience, and he's also telling white people, this is what's going to happen. This is what is going to happen. Um, and this will happen. Uh, but I think he just says in that, in that two sentences, uh, he opens up the door for what's coming next, how he's going to build his argument uh, um, to, uh, uh, to create uh you know, the, the articles of the appeal that will deal with these different topics. Someone says, I believe that in summary, he actually answers the questions that he asks. So, <laughs> for that. Yeah. yeah. Shall we move on to the first article? Emily, would you mind reading it from the chat while I wrestle with my very recalcitrant computer? So, from article one. I have been for years troubling the pages of historians to find out what our fathers have done for, for the white Christians of America to merit such condign punishment as they have inflicted on them and to continue to inflict on us their children. But I must aver that my researches have hitherto been to no effect. I have therefore come to the immovable conclusion that they Americans have and do continue to punish us for nothing else but for enriching them in their country. For I cannot conceive of anything else, nor will I ever believe otherwise until the Lord shall convince me. Okay, we have Anne Moritz saying, I am imagining the fear and reactionary nature of many whites when they saw the disruptive nature of what Walker is appealing to. And four, do we have a history of white folks in his day that he actually won over? And another comment is, I wonder if he uses the word condign to put whites in their place through demonstrating their ignorance of this word and the, um, I guess, the extent of his own education. It is an ironic use, I would say, of the word because, I mean, how could anyone merit such a punishment? How could they, how could they be? talking about it that way. I just think there's this biting sarcasm. It's brilliant old passage. I mean, it's like, all right, follow the money. That's what he's saying. Follow mm -hmm. the money. Um, and uh, and again, I that last line he wrote, not surprisingly perhaps, but he invokes the Lord a lot throughout 
you know, in a way, I and I, and I, maybe I'm others may disagree with this, but it feels to me as though uh, he is always his the last card he plays is the Lord is here, and if you're not with me on this, the Lord, you you'll answer him. I mean, that's really throughout the whole document because um, he is going after particularly. Um, this isn't a consequence of slavery, but, uh, you know, when he gets to preachers later, you know, he really lays it on the line. <laughs> you're with me or you're really going to be in hell. Um. Yeah. And one of the things that he says um, is uh, how we could be so submissive to a gang of men whom we cannot tell whether they are as good as ourselves or not. I never could conceive. And so in that, you know, uh, he's looking at the, these men who are in control and power, um, uh, as far as I can see, who value the, the uh, profit over recognizing and acknowledging human beings who are in that possessive white logic to uh, to uh, reinforce that they are entitled and this entitlement that's there. It's really implied in this for me um, and the hypocrisy with which they present uh, Christian principles to uphold that and to gird their positions in, in this, in this space. Um, so, uh, for me, uh, the Christians of America, he is questioning, you know, uh, are you really Christian? Are you uh, holding to those um, principles? And if, and if so, if, if the, the Bible is being used here, um, it, it, it would be used to prove that slavery and bondage was a, is against all of this rather than being for it. And he does cite in the later parts of his appeal the um, uh, the credit to Ethiopia. Um, uh, I mean, Ethiopia and, and Egypt as this place of civilization and the um, the precursor to Western civilization being civilized. And what the carryover in um, the doctrine of of being moral and the codes of those places to be moral in setting up your civilization poses this idea of what was vested in Christianity as coming from the Africans, what is becoming a, an idea and a perception of human life and civilization being that which is a precursor to America. And yet the people who look like those people are here being enslaved and serving those who put themselves on the pedestal of being the Christians in America. And um, I just think that he does this play on words that ref that reinforces you reflecting, like you see this mirror, that's you. Okay. And so can you, you know, look at yourself and identify what I'm saying with what's going on in this in this place, and for me, it reckons 
with the 21st century and the conversations that we've been having over the last two two years that um, it's ugly head has not been cut off. It is still apparent and and raging. Yeah. Well, let us move on to article two. I'll read this one. Men of color who are also of sense. For you particularly is my appeal designed. Our more ignorant brethren are not able to penetrate its value. I call upon you, therefore, to cast your eyes upon the wretchedness of your brethren and do your utmost to enlighten them. Go to work and enlighten your brethren. Let the Lord see you doing what you can to rescue them and yourselves from degradation. I'll comment. Um, I think that I see this particular um, piece as really directed at particularly men in Boston and other places like this and, and Charleston and um, Wilmington who are, who have had the benefit of education and not just calling words, but that, that these are men of reason. And then those who are, have that another type of literacy who may not be necessarily lettered, but can reason through a natural ability to be able to do that. But that, Within that is this uh, mission to appeal to this cadre of courageous men and, and enlightened African-Americans um, who he believed would be most capable of understanding the dimensions and the urgency of this problem that, um, that they were then to organize and deliver this. There's this sec sacred world that he exists in and the secular world. And there is this idea that in the secular education of, um, of the people to invest in, um, in them, this idea that we must move together. In Boston, as I was saying before, that there had been this period of time where they were looking to going back to Africa and immigrating elsewhere. But here, is the admonishment to people who are here, who are in this place to educate and to be responsible in this, this urgent need to deliver education that would free the masses of black people from being demoralized and, um, uh, and being delivered from ignorance of uh, not being able necessarily to put into words what it would be appealing to the abolitionists and the other uh, people who are looking at writing articles that this is the charge of those who have the wherewithal to, to do that. And that uh, also this is a, a, a shining light, a counterweight to the perversive uh, indictment of blacks as inferior, that this has to be, um, raised as a, a subject matter that is truly invested in by those who are most affected by it. So self-agency here becomes a predominant command, I, I think, in my, own, uh, in my own understanding of it. Men of color, he's calling them 
He's, you know, it's like one of those broadsides that we see, you know, when they're uh, recruiting the 54th or they're recruiting men of color, like pay attention here. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this this thing to do that is uh, uh, that is about you and for you and that the increase in numbers is the the increase, as he calls calls, uh, the soldiers in the holy army and that this is, you know, God directed this is god given that this is your charge so um uh, a lot of this comes through in what uh the masons have as their charter uh under prince hall but as it gets more critical as we approach the 1839 amistad event and um those other things that bring abolition to its head and its pinnacle we have the words of David Walker that inspire this charge and this responsibility. Uh, and by the time we get to <laughs> the 20th century and, and uh, somebody Sorry. like that, and parochially, uh, forgive me for those who might not know who I'm talking about, but LL Cool J uh, creates this thing for us, by us. It is about you doing it for yourself that you are united enough. And and in his his speech in 1828 that was published in the Freedom's Journal, he talks about this uniting. Nobody can do that for you but you. So that charge is embedded in this for me. If I could just pick up quickly on on that. And Lamucci, you referred to the sort of commanding nature of this. And actually, I had a kind of similar reaction when I was just going through the the wording of this article, and I found that he was, it was a series of emphatic entreaties. So it's cast your eyes upon the wretchedness, do your utmost to enlighten them, go to work, let the Lord see what you are doing. It's kind of like marching orders, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Agreement. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, a space where um, the, the, the key of inspiration and organizational structure is that you have this. So let's use it. Come on. Go. (laughs) In very contemporary terms, excuse me, but those are the kind of um, commands that we even get. If if I'm looking at like people who call themselves woke, quote unquote, woke today, the Black Lives Matter movement and others who are participating in the larger uh, scenario of demanding rights, uh, using all of your resources that you have to make the product that you want to happen happen is a part of this, this command to be awake, this command to uh, um, use whatever is at your disposal and, and be alive with it. Um, uh, whether it's sacred or secular in your a- expression, it is important that it be done. So, yeah. I think also there's um, an implied promise in this. Mm-hmm. The, the last sentence where he says, let the Lord see you doing what you can to rescue them. And what came to mind for me was the Lord helps those who help themselves. So if you get out there and your your work is recognized, you have a powerful ally um, who will who will stand behind you. One person asks, I'm confused about who it is that he wants to be enlightened. 
Well, uh, in that phrase, uh, in the, the, the putting forth of that, if I can read it here, um, he says uh, to do your utmost to enlighten them, to go to work and enlighten your brethren. He is talking about uh, people who have not had the advantage of uh, of uh, being taught and educated in one stream. That's one way, and, or being a part of a uh, of a group that can activate its own presence to uh, to rescue themselves from degradation. So I think he is talking to the black world. He is talking basically though, particularly to um, those enslaved here in, in America for one, but the crisis of black being black here is for free and enslaved people. And among those, those who are most literate, when we talk about Boston as this place of literacy and development, um, there were there were whites in the South who were not as educated as most of the black people here. And when you look at that call that he is um, saying needs to be uh, reckoned with, to cast your eyes upon the wretchedness of your brethren, those who have less than you are the ones that he is exhorting here to do something about this situation to to do that so he is talking directly to men of color that he addresses in the very first part of that sentence and inclusive of that men of color we have to include women and children and especially here in Boston you have societies that are and 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 a garrison juvenile choir you have children who are participating in this same kind of exercise that when they come to the African school or the ABL Smith school, they are met if they're coming from like Macon, Georgia, and they haven't been allowed to have the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the privilege to have an education and, and denied that by law. There are children who are best scholars in those rooms who are uh, taught to help their own in this plight of being educated, being literate, being able to pick out more than what David Walker says is a call of words, but to be able to reason. And that this was the charge of people and teachers like Susan Paul, who was from a family of educators and worked in the African school to raise the level of what children thought of themselves being educated, but going beyond that to become abolitionists. So, in terms of this, this is a, a whole um, grasp of utilizing everyone and anyone who is of sable hue, as Mariah Stewart refers to us, to have that charge who are educated and to share it and to take that on. Um, yeah, and we see the same kind of thing um, levied in, if, you, if I can use this example, in revolutionary Cuba, where... You know, each one teach one is the is the is the the edict, and there's uh, in in the African meeting house as we come back to Boston. There's Tuesday night meetings where the whole community can come and learn and be involved. In other places like Philadelphia, in New York, and um, places where there were other meeting houses and gathering spaces, this was an edict to then raise the level of thinking and education of those who were denied access. 
We have two more articles to look at quickly. So let me uh, share the next one from article three, which is called Our Wretchedness and Consequence of the Preachers of the Religion of Jesus Christ. What the American preachers can think of us, I aver this day before my God, I have never been able to define. They have newspapers and monthly periodicals, which they receive in continual succession, but on the pages of which you will scarcely ever find a paragraph respecting slavery, which is 10,000 times more injurious to this country than all of the other evils put together, and which will be the final overthrow of its government unless something is very speedily done, for their cup is, there, is nearly full. Perhaps they will laugh at or make light of this, but I tell you, Americans, that unless you speedily alter your course, you and your country are gone. I warn you in the name of the Lord, whether you will hear or forbear to repent and reform or you are ruined. Do you think that our blood is hidden from the Lord because you can hide it from the rest of the world by sending out missionaries and by your charitable deeds to the Greeks, Irish, etc.? It's notable, I think, in this um, uh, in this particular article, or this excerpt from this article, that he repeats twice the warning that it's going to be all over unless you come and face the facts about slavery. And he he starts off by saying, "And you and your country are gone," uh, and then. The next sentence, I warn you in the name of the Lord to repent and reform, or you are ruined. Mm -hmm. um, and that's there's just in this particular section. There's a couple of other places in the appeal where he foretells the demise of the republic in no uncertain terms. And, um, uh, yeah, it's kind of a running theme. Yeah, I also think that this is the the why I call him a prophet, he is seeing the Civil War. Mm -hmm. He's seeing this, the advance of um, rebellion. He's already been involved in a place where rebellions are happening over and over and over again. And uh, in a place where Virginia has decided to, its, its constitution to, um, to eventually end slavery. So, but yet, so gradually, because they have had the the force of the Haitian Revolution, and that these that the realization that if we are not giving rights to people, that they will rebel, they will end this in their own manner, just as we struck the chord to they, that they as white colonists struck the chord to end their dependence from Britain even if it took military might to do so, and it did. And so in his prophetic look at the comparison of that in terms of freedom, freedom is freedom. And freedom is a moving and not static. And as we look at through, uh, if we are able to reimagine, as David is looking at the scenario, scenario in this country, he is seeing this, this change happening through military might. I, I do believe that he is really seeing that, that it is not just the word of God, but he talks about faith and action. He talks about the action that 
you know, you may have the faith that this is going to come about, but in, in terms, and I'm doing this in my own words, in terms of acting, something has to be done and something will be done. And it's like keeping something in um, a, 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 of an explosive nature in a container pretty soon. The, you know, the, the reactions and the chemical processes are going to explode and America will be gone. And we witnessed that in the upheaval <clears throat> and the coming of the Civil War and the lack of reckoning with um, what the abolitionists are uh, trying to um, um, bring about. And then if we recognize that David is in this place where he's seeing all manner of conversations about freedom, but all manner of how freedom is being perceived as a commodity and as a thing and what people are bringing to that conversation from their own experience. So there's different entries into this conversation, just as the uh, garrison abolitionists are immediatist, but they're pacifists. Uh, Douglas is uh, a Garrisonian abolitionist up to a certain point. And then he says, oh, no, I've gone through slavery. I see, you know, the horrors. I've had it, you know, stripes on my back. I think that something else has to be done no matter what way it is. If it has to be military, it's going to come to that. And Walker, having seen the the people of the swamp area who have maroons and have armed insurrection that somebody along somewhere is providing these, this ammunition to these enslaved people so that they can be free. He is seeing that, you know, if you, you don't straighten up and, and, and the people in his area at that time were three, at least three to one um, who were black, um, that there will be no America. And on we shall go to article four which is entitled Our Wretchedness and Consequence of the Colonizing Plan. Throw away your fears and prejudices then and enlighten us and treat us like men. And we will like you more than we do now hate you. And tell us now no more about colonization for America is as much our country as it is yours. But Americans, I declare to you, while you keep us and our children in bondage and treat us like brutes to make us support you and your families, we cannot be your friends. You do not look for it, do you? Treat us then like men and we will be your friends. And there is not a doubt in my mind but that the whole of the past will be sunk into oblivion and we yet, under God, will become a united and happy people. And the note is, you are not astonished at my saying we hate you. Or if we are men, we cannot but hate you while you are treating us like dogs. Well, I guess that's in line with, you know, as you reap, you shall sow for, for, one, for one way of looking at it. Um, but in that Jeffersonian document where he is, uh, Mr. Jefferson, but have given the world the remarks respecting us when we are submissive to them and so much servile deceit prevail among ourselves when we so meanly submit to their murderous slashes. This, this idea that Christianity is about love, it's about um, 
and and Republican ideas about equality. That in if in this idea of uh, of freedom and democracy is that why are the 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 heads of um, people not vested in that being spread to all people that not we know that this is not the first instance of slavery in the world yes but we know that it is uh different radically because it is dealing with the issue of race as a moniker of why would one be enslaved and um as we we think about that um and preachers being in pulpits where they can discuss the unfairness and the inequity of this instead being um, urged to then continue their um, their sought their their onslaught of people who are who are really the backbone of this country um, yet treated in uh, unspeakable ways he relates a story, a story of a of a um of a mother being whipped to death by her son because he's ordered to do so and the horrible act of that that is like uh treating a person as a beast but one of their own having to almost take the role of a beast to do it where is that in any part of any civilized society? Where is that? So this idea of uh, reconciling within one's own self that this could be my fate by law, that this is not just on a wish, but that the this country in America girded these behaviors by law, not just religious law, but state and federal laws. We can come to the case of uh, Dred Scott in 1857 of being deemed not even a man. So this continuous um, and continuing line of um, African being the beast and the Europeans being the human is the the speak of the courts that I don't even have to acknowledge you as a man. I don't have to acknowledge your humanness. And so with him writing this prior to that 1857 case leads us to understand how deeply invested he was in, in the message about that. If you continue to treat us like dogs, how can we love you? If Christianity is associated with love, stop that. In other words, it's a, 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 a I think another command in him saying it that way um, that gives you some structure to um, review and reflect on what is your thought, especially directed, this is especially directed to white people in this in this case. The merch, I have a quick question for you and I because I'd love your thoughts on this. In he 
this is uh, what well, I think maybe one of three places in the appeal where David Walker sort of says there is hope that we can reconcile, that we can, as he puts it finally here, um, uh, that we can yet under God become a united and happy people. And he says at the beginning there, and there is no doubt in my mind that that's possible. I'm wondering what you think of that, because I, I have to say when I read it again this time, I was like, seriously, you really believe that, given what you've personally been through, what you see around you? Do you think... It was his religious faith that allowed him to be able to cling to that hope that it was possible in the end to reconcile, to end slavery and all of that? Well, I, I do think that in the deep wells of being human, uh -huh. there is this idea, if you are human, that there is another human on the earth that you can identify with, that there's this well with mm -hmm. which... Uh, I like in, in metaphysics, um, we think about you know, low as you can go, so can you go high. Mm. And so if that is where your threshold of being human rests, that hope is the protector. Hope must be anchored somewhere in the human that I, can, I will examine myself and say, what I'm doing is not right and, and it is not human. Mm -hmm. In religious philosophy uh, and theology, I'm sorry, and the cosmology of, of uh, other religions, you, you, you find that, that space that you can occupy that says there is hope, there's light at the end of that tunnel. I can see it coming. Even though this is the present uh, state, so it allow he's allowing this opportunity to turn the archive to rather than being in the space of the paranoia of uh, of not recognizing the sovereignty of people, the erasure of people, the degradation of people, that it is an opportunity to get a hold of yourself. And, and, and grasp that this is shameful. Are we going to repair it? Are we going to continue in that shamefulness? So I, I think it is his call in a way of saying, you know, that we can be better and that we can, we can un unlock that. But all of that must be checked that mm -hmm. what has been happening is satanic, if you will. Mm -hmm. It is, it is uh, you know, um, um, indicative of, uh, of what would be attributed to devils. And so mm -hmm. as we think about this, do, is that where we want to be? More or less is his, I think, that's just me, but that is his assertion that there is hope for humanity. Mm -hmm. And... I think we all operate with that. And Brian Stevenson said, uh, as a lawyer who has uh, worked in the Mississippi Delta and, you know, been applying himself in a contemporaneous um, um, manner to what white supremacy has brought and white possessive thought has brought in the, in the country, even after slavery and the impact of the complexity and the nature of slavery. Um, and people who are flying these Confederate flags and, uh, he's told numerous stories, but one of them that, that um, one of 
his quotes was that we we have hope, that we must protect our hope, and that we must um, have it as something that taps us on the shoulder when we're thirsty. Um, this idea that uh, no matter what the state is, we can't give that up. Because if we give that up, we're gone. And then in the Testament of Hope by MLK, um, um, you, you have that same embrace. So it is a moral issue. It is an issue of being human. It is in the testaments. It is in the stories. It is in Kemet, Kush. It's in those places where civilization has its hold on us and in our writings to be able to rise to a better level. So that's what I saw when I read that. Thank you for asking. As we tie things up, I'd like to reiterate what Lamarchi just pointed to, which is, I think on the one hand, there is hope. And then the other hand, there is the question, is this who we want to be? And I think if we can hold those two things at the same time in our heart, um, it can be a very helpful way to not only read David Walker, but to think about today. So I want to thank you, Peter and Lamerchi, very much for your insight and the conversation. And I want to thank our audience. So have a good night, everybody. To learn more about David Walker and his appeal, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 240. I'll have a link to the four excerpts that were discussed in the talk, as well as the full text of the appeal for you to read and enjoy. I'll also link to our past episode 190, which you can listen to for more about Walker and the wide reach of the appeal. And of course, I'll include a link to the next installment in the Old North Speaker series about David Walker. Yours and Mine, Belonging in the American Experience, which is coming up on January 26th. For those listeners who have missed hearing co-host Emerita Nikki's voice on the show, she'll be moderating the panel discussion for that next event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. A fair number of you listen on Spotify, and Spotify just added ratings. So if you want to give us a five-star rating in the Spotify app, that'd be great. Apple Podcasts is still where most people discover podcasts. So if you subscribe on Apple, please consider writing us a brief review. And as always, if you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.